The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah 65, verses 8 to 16. So uh, let us hear the word of God with joy and in faith from Isaiah 65. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. One of the uh, most uh, uh, neglected of uh, biblical doctrines uh, in my own uh, estimation is uh, presented before us in this text in a very radical way that reminds us that it shouldn't be so neglected, dare I say it, uh, not all professing Christians uh, will be saved. Uh, not everyone that attaches themselves to the visible community of the faith uh, belongs to the Lord God. A very quick illustration of this is uh, found in the parable uh, of uh, the sower uh, such a radical doctrine, people struggle with it, I'm sure, but uh, our Lord uh, brings it home to us uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 13, uh, verses 20 to 21. There's a reminder uh, of one who receives the word of God uh, and then who, uh, who falls away. Let's look at this text very quickly as an introduction uh, to this uh, concept of a visible community, which is always being sifted, and uh, not all who attach themselves visibly to the church belong uh, to the true church. So we read in Matthew 13, in verses 20 to 21, and the one on whom was sown on the rocky places 
Uh, this is the man who hears the word. Now notice the text. He hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We would say he enters the visible community of the saints. He receives the word with joy. He comes to faith. He makes a profession uh, to know Christ in a personal way. Uh, now, verse 21, the postscript, if you will. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when afflictions or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away. One of the things this text suggests is that there is such a thing as a temporary faith. We join sometimes a visible community of the faith. We join the church. Wonderful. Over time, things happen. And over time, sometimes that visible attachment is eroded and people simply are not truly of the faith. Sometimes they visibly leave the community of the saints. Sometimes they simply always remain, but their heart is never really in it. It's easy to come to church. It's difficult to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. And that is the point, I think, that Jesus leaves us with. Isaiah does the same. It is that the larger notion that there is a true remnant as a part of the visible community of faith. Isaiah addresses that reality here, and so too does the New Testament. In our text, a remnant is preserved from among the wicked, verses 8 to 10. And the wicked includes the entire visible community. Uh, but in the grace of God, he is going to preserve a true remnant among the visible. And the wicked will be destroyed, verses 11 to 15, while the righteous are blessed, verse 16. So let's begin uh, with this great reality that God will preserve a remnant. Now, within the visible community of the saints all over the world, all over the different denominations of the world, God has a true remnant that he will preserve. Because God always has a witness. He always keeps a witness of those who are truly his. And the message here is uh, not to the world at large, but rather to members of the visible community and the reality that some are true and some are not. Uh, it's meant, in many respects, to shock us to true faith, to remind us uh, that there is a larger event that is at work. It's not just the visible community of the saints that's going to be saved. It's the true members of that community who have been saved by God. A number of illustrations of this, if you struggle with it, I understand it's a difficult doctrine, First uh, Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 18, the prophet uh, is thinking that he's the only one who is true among the larger visible community of the nation of Israel. But God reminds him that he has a witness. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God has a true remnant. I, I doubt that that number is literally true. It expresses a more profound reality that within the larger community of the visible nation that professes to know the one true God, God has a true remnant that does not worship idols. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 27, uh, is a text that speaks to this uh, same uh, greater truth. 
that there is a true remnant among the entirety of the visible community. Romans chapter 9, verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Quoting Isaiah, by the way. So it confronts us with this reality that, yes, I, I belong to the visible community of the church, but do I belong to the Lord God? Is my heart being purified? Have I forsaken the idols of this world? Am I being sanctified? Is my heart uh, all the more uh, in sorrow because of my sin and rejoicing because of faith in Jesus Christ? Again, difficult doctrine, uh, but nonetheless, it's the truth of Scripture. Well, in verses 8 to 10, we, we deal with those who truly belong to God. So that Isaiah begins with a believing remnant. The initial metaphor is wine found in a cluster. Verse 8, chapter 65, as the new wine is found in the cluster. And one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit uh, in it, or blessing in it. Uh, so within the cluster, there are good grapes and bad grapes. And the two are separated. And God will bless the righteous remnant in the cluster. The entire cluster professes to know God, uh, but there are two types of grapes in the cluster, the good and the bad. God will bless uh, one and destroy the other. He will separate the two. We know their faith is genuine because of the labels attached to them. Again, over time and in degree, the visible community is sifted uh, by evidence. And the evidence here, one of the evidences here, is found in the word servant. Uh, it's very easy to join a church. It's an entirely different matter to be a servant of the Most High God, to be a servant of the church. And this word servant is used of the righteous remnant seven times in this text. As a reminder that the true people of God are the servants of God. They serve Him as His people. Generally, in the evangelical community today, we bifurcate. Uh, well, there is a committed Christian, and they're servants of God, uh, but there are Christians that are not servants. Uh, Isaiah, I think, is destroying that bifurcation. Uh, the true people of God are all servants of God. It's a delineating marker of true faith. It's one of the great illustrations of genuine faith that goes beyond a mere profession. So true faith has a moniker given to us by the prophet Isaiah that we are the servants of God. And that is something that's a lifetime event. Uh, I'm uh, not suggesting that it doesn't, in terms of sanctification, uh, grow, become more intense, become more open, become more visible. I'm just only proclaiming the reality of the text that the righteous remnant are the servants of God, and they express that servanthood in numerous ways. One of the ways it's expressed is uniting with the visible church. But nonetheless, that in and of itself uh, is not the entire matter. 
Now, the pinnacle of this, of course, is the servant of the Lord. We have four servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and beginning the latter part of 52 uh, on down through chapter 53. The pinnacle of true Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is he known? He's the servant of the Lord. If we are his sons, we do more than merely profess the faith. We become the servants of the Lord. Application, if you're a Christian, serve the Lord. Become his servant. In whatever way God calls you to serve, engage. And engage as much as you can by the strength of the Spirit of God. Because it's evidence of true faith. Manifest your presence in the visible communion. Manifest your presence in the sacraments of the church. Serve your neighbor in love and serve God in love because that's what servants do. We have a way in our culture of making the Christian faith a cafeteria. We need to be very careful with that. It's very dangerous. That's the point of this notion of a cluster. Within the cluster, there are good grapes and bad. God will bless the good and destroy the bad. Uh, suffice it to say that this title in this text of Isaiah chapter 65, verses 8 to 16, is acknowledging who the true righteous remnant is by this moniker of servant of the Lord. And God promises not to destroy them. Let's look at uh, that latter part of verse 8. Do not destroy it, for there is a benefit or a blessing in it. Within the cluster, there are sweet grapes, and God says don't destroy it, for they have a blessing. So I will act on behalf of, notice the moniker, my servants, in order not to destroy all of them. One cluster, two types of grapes, one will be blessed, the other destroyed. It's a terrifying doctrine meant to purify our faith and purify our servants, our servanthood. Uh, we don't just hang around the church. We don't just play church. We don't just occasionally attend. We're the servants of the Lord. We meet with his people. We engage in his sacraments. We are witnesses. We confess his name. Uh, we love our neighbors and we love our one true God. Uh, the blessing in our text is geographic, uh, verse 9 to the first part of verse 10. Uh, perhaps the near fulfillment is in post-exilic men like Ezra and Nehemiah, who led the return from the Babylonian captivity. In my own mind, the end state of geographic labels is eternity. The new Jerusalem in heaven, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, the other telling label is that the remnant is described in the latter part of verse 10 as a people who seek me, for my people seek me. Uh, that one of the evidences of true faith is we seek the Lord, not just as a one-time event, not just as an occasional event throughout the week or the month, but it's a perpetual uh, element in our life that we seek the Lord. We seek him in prayer. We seek him in uh, Bible study. 
we seek him in the visible community of the saints known as the visible church of Jesus Christ. We seek him in the sacraments. It is what we do. We seek the Lord as an evidence uh, of those that God has blessed. Well, in verses 11 to 15, false members of the visible communion are described as well. Isaiah takes up with those members of the covenant community who are playing God false, verses 11 to 15. Like the righteous remnant, they too are described. By the way, one of my favorite expressions of our Lord that are descriptive of this event is uh, the words of our Savior, you know my disciples by their fruit. It's interesting here that we have the metaphor of a cluster of grapes, which are fruit. And that becomes a very dominant metaphor in John chapter 15. Uh, but again, let's look at Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 11, where we have a description of those who are playing God false. But you who forsake the Lord, forsake. It's a description of their lives. Perhaps in a catastrophic event. I mean, I simply don't know how it takes evidence. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this verb is used in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Demas, Paul says, has forsaken me. He deserts the apostle Paul. He rejects the faith and returns to the world. Another illustration is who? Our Lord's visible community were 12 men. 11 were righteous and one at a point in time tipped his hand, returned to the world, Judas. At a point he belonged to the Lord and then at a point he forsook the Lord and abandoned the faith. And so Paul says of Demas, having loved the present world, has forsaken me and deserted me. What a powerful expression of our culture. We love the world and the things in the world. John uses that in his first epistle, does he not? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Forsake the world for the love of God. Secondly, they are described as those who forget my holy mountain, referencing the temple of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But the visible church meets in visible communion as an evidence of those who do not forsake the Lord God. And Isaiah says, latter part of verse 10, who set a table for fortune. They set a table for idols. The Greek translation, Septuagint, has uh, the word for demons. It's the essence of idol worship. We pay little heed to it, but really it's the worship of demonic forces who set a table for fortune and who fill their cups with mixed wine for destiny. The word fortune is literally in the Hebrew uh, the word Gad, who is a pagan deity of fortune. Let's look at that word. It's not used very often. Genesis chapter 30, 
in the 11th verse. Now, we have this word for fortune used. Genesis chapter 30 and verse 11. And Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. It's a play on words. The second word in uh, our text, to fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, literally, the Hebrew word is many, it's the God of fate. Now think about it for a moment in our culture. How often do you hear throughout your week the word luck? That's an idol. Christians should abandon that word from the lexicon of their speech. If you believe in the sovereignty and the providence of God, there's no such thing as luck. Luck is a God of this world. I mean, think about it. Thousands of people every Friday night, or I don't know, maybe throughout the weekend or perhaps even throughout the week, go to worship before the God of luck and what we know is the church of the world in casinos. Seeking their fortune seeking in games of chance that the world would bless them. It is an incredible growing industry in our culture. But it's idolatry pure and simple. Fate. There's no such thing as fate in a world governed by God. Games of chance and gambling. Just simply everywhere. You cannot drive on a highway at some point that you don't pass a casino. You cannot hear throughout some point in your week something like good luck. Just entails the reality that there is no God. There's just simply fate. And that's, again, an idol. And that's what the world worships for. Something, another encroachment, of course, in our own cultures the adoption of Eastern religion and Eastern fads in terms of fortune tellers and tarot cards. It's incredible that our culture that began as seemingly as a visible Christian culture, 18th century, the church in America. Uh, today the church in America is in retreat, it's eroding. We believe in luck and fortune meaning that uh, there ought to be a purifying sense as the servants of the Lord to forsake that and to leave it and to not use words like luck because it's a pagan word that decries a God of providence and sovereignty. The point of the gospel is we forsake these idols We don't read our horoscope in the Daily Oklahoman because it's an idol. And uh, the false remnant that worships the idols of the world, words like gambling and casinos and chance and for fortune tellers. Uh, here, uh, they come to a table. They sit at a table and they mix cups of wine uh, with, again, uh, worship of, of an idol. 
You and I go to a different table, do we not? This morning at the end of our service, we will partake of the sacrament of the Lord's, the Lord's, the Lord's table. He has a different table. One of the evidences of genuine faith is the sacrament of the Lord's table that we forsake the tables of the world. Psalm 23.5 Let us set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. We forsake the tables of idol worship and that God makes our cup overflow because we belong to him and we belong at that table. And professing Christians who forsake it are engaging in the worship of self, idolatry. I love the initial chapters of the book of Proverbs, wisdom, lady wisdom, personification of the grandeur and the majesty of Jesus Christ, sets before us a table, invites young men to come and to sit and to be full and to drink, to have their thirst quenched. Why is that, that wisdom is personified as a grand and beautiful lady? Because they're competitors in the world and they have their own tables. Come and dine with me and forget your husband and forsake and sit at my table and drink your heart to the full. Well, your husband is gone on a long trip and I'll care for you. That's folly. It's the way of death, way of destruction. You take it into your heart. It'll destroy you, but that's our culture. There follows in Isaiah the end of the idolater in verse 12. I will destine you for the sword and all who shall bow down to the slaughter. Uh, Verse 13, uh, they will will, uh, hunger and thirst, uh, but never be satisfied. Notice, notice again the text. Behold, my servants shall drink. You shall drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Again, this delineation between the false and the true, with heavy hearts and a broken spirit. So many people, I've just staggered by it, that you can tell by their lives that they chase the world, they dance with the world, uh, they dance with chance and fortune and luck, but they're, they're just never really satisfied. There's never enough. One of the reasons I think we have an opioid crisis in our culture, I'm not suggesting that people are not trying to deal with pain and physical pain, sometimes psychological pain. I understand that. There's nothing wrong with uh, going to a physician if you confront those realities, but be very careful. Sometimes I think people go way beyond that. We have an incredible addiction problem in our culture because people chase the world and they're never really satisfied. They can never really have enough. I think in the heart of the Christians, one of the things we engage in as we grow older in the faith is a profound, deep, joyful satisfaction in the blessedness of knowing Jesus Christ is Savior. There are consequences to false service. Never really satisfied. Never really joyful. 
Well, the distant fulfillment of, uh, of true and false servants uh, service here is uh, described, I think, in this single cluster of the visible community, uh, but it's made up of two constituent parts, the true and the false. Let's think about the New Testament. The imagery of the vineyard is also found in the New Testament in a parallel context to Isaiah of a righteous remnant and false professors in the covenant community. John chapter 15. Very clear in this text. The vine has branches that bear fruit by abiding in Christ. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Uh, Picked up again in verse 8, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That one of the delineating evidence of true faith is we are the servants of God, that we bear fruit for his glory. We are visible in our fruit bearing to the world that we belong to God. The Christian life is not your own private experience that you can close yourself off and cloister your worship in your home. No, you are called to unite with the visible community of the people of God and to bear fruit for the glory of the one true God. But in this text, the vine has other branches, does it not, who do not bear fruit. They give little visible evidence. And they, like Isaiah, suffer catastrophic loss. John chapter 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, he dries up, and they gather them and cast them into fire, and they are burned. So our Lord is using this very same metaphor that there is a large visible community of a vine, but the vine has two components, one who bears fruit, they abide in Christ, the other who bears no fruit, they are cut away and destroyed. a sifting mechanism to remind us to purify our faith, uh, to be very careful of self-definitions of the Christian faith. In a larger theological context, it's nothing more than the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that the saints persevere in good times and bad, times of blessing, times of affliction and persecution, times in which things seem to be going just fine in life. But even in the difficult times, in times in which we struggle, maybe we lose a job or something catastrophic happens at work or in a family, the true servants of God go the distance. They persevere. They persevere in the faith. It's an evidence of true faith. Uh, the concept of... Uh, uh, of, of Isaiah talking about idol worship by gathering at a table provided by luck and chance and fortune, by drinking of a cup uh, of uh, the god of pagan destiny is, uh, is a sin that the church engages in in the New Testament, particularly uh, uh, the church at Corinth. If you have your New Testament, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because sometimes Christians become errant. They need to be reminded. They need to be taught the scriptures. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice 
the demons and not the God, and I do not want you to become shares in demons. What's going on here is that some members of the Christian church belong to trade unions. Nothing wrong with belonging to a union. I belong to a couple in my life. But in this particular culture, they would have holy days, if you will, in which the members of the union would go and engage in a celebratory meal in worship of the God of the trade union. I belonged at one point in my life to a pipe fitters union, and another time in my life I belonged to the Brotherhood of Railroad and Trainmen. I never was ever told that those unions had idols, that if you uh, worshipped and served that idol, God would bless the union. That's the lie that the members of the Corinthian church were partaking in. They were going to the sacrificial meal in worship of the God of the union. Paul says, you're worshiping demons. You need to break it off because we worship the one true God. It became a difficult uh, struggle for members of those unions uh, because if you didn't go to the meal, uh, the other members of the union would persecute you uh, and threaten you because you were threatening their own prosperity. And Paul condemns it nonetheless. So does Jesus. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 uh, because Jesus deals with this exact same uh, transgression. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before those men, sons of Israel. Now notice, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Sometimes in the scripture, idol worship is captured in a metaphor of fornication because you are forsaking the one true God and you are joining or participating with a false god. Sometimes it's literal in the New Testament. Other times it's figurative or spiritual. But the more profound sense is if you engage in idolatry, if you as a Christian read your horoscope, or you play games of chance that you might be blessed by a pagan god, you're engaging literally in spiritual adultery and forsaking God. So be very careful because Jesus is saying that that's very serious. Same thing is found in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and, leeches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality, eat things, sacrifice to idols. Again, they were attending cultic services in adoration of an idol, which is not an idol. It's the worship of demonic forces. Well, Christ has his own feast. Look at verse 17. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows, but he receives it. He has his own table, and that's where we're to congregate. We're to have an uncompromising faith. 
It's interesting that this concept of a new name is used by Isaiah in chapter 65 because in the latter part of verse 15, true believers are given a new name. A new name. We've looked at this previously, but it's picked up by John in the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, perseveres. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The name speaks to a new status and the end time restoration of the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, lastly, in Isaiah 65, verse 16, uh, God blesses his righteous remnant. It's interesting in Isaiah 65, 16, uh, we have an interesting phrase, two times, uh, the God of truth uh, is referenced, shall be blessed by the God of truth and shall swear by the God of truth. In the Hebrew Bible, the word is literally the God of amen. And John alludes to this text in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the amen, the faithful and true witness. John is alluding to Isaiah 65, 16 of the true remnant who is Jesus Christ. He's the beginning of the righteous remnant. He is the beginning of what it means to be a servant of God. It is a powerful attestation to the deity of Christ. It highlights his execution of the divine witness and his sovereignty over the new creation. In other words, Jesus affirms that he is the God of amen and the God of Isaiah 65 and verse 16. And if he is, why would you go to a pagan idol feast? Why would you use words like luck and chance? Why would you engage the blessings of a casino? That he is the source of blessing is defined by the new creation. Again, time has uh, left us, uh, but nonetheless, we have this powerful attestation of the doctrine of perseverance of the doctrine that there is a visible community of the saints and a cluster of grapes or a vine, John chapter 15. But among that visible community, there are the true and the false. Let us, let us manifest true faith in the truth of Scripture May we be a part of the true righteous remnant uh, defined by Jesus Christ who is the true and faithful witness and may we walk in the path that he has set before us.